Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, medieval Europeans believed that God revealed valuable lessons in morality to humanity through nature itself. A very popular way of teaching those lessons through a bit of uh, church intervention along the way were books called bestiaries or books of beasts. Now, I hasten to add that by nature and lessons of morality, I mean the often imaginary nature created by priests and monks who didn't get out all that much in those days, and they hadn't seen very much of the real world. In other words, many of the creatures related in the books of beasts were completely imaginary. They were legends. But the books of beasts often had elaborate illustrations. And in those pre-screen days when most Europeans could not read either their own vernacular language or church Latin, the illustrations were the most important part and they were widely admired and treasured. Now probably the most enduring story from those books is of the phoenix, uh, an immortal bird that cyclically flies into the flames is burned to ash and then regenerates into a brand new lease on life. In medieval Europe, the story was used to illustrate the sacrifice of Jesus, but it also had a subtext of personal change, kind of hitting rock bottom and starting all over again, and I think that's why that particular story has endured. Another story from the books of beasts was of weary seafarers who had been at sea too long and had run out of drinkable fresh water. As the story goes, the sailors are in utter despair for their lives, and then they see an island. The, the, they land on that island that they see, they anchor their ship to it and build a fire, planning to find some fresh water and make a hearty meal. Alas for the sailors, they have anchored themselves to a sleeping whale. The fire scorches the whale, wakes it up, and in pain, the beast dives to put out the fire. The unfortunate sailors are dragged to their doom in a watery grave. That's a cautionary tale not only for seafarers, but for all of us, as those priests knew. As with the legend of the phoenix, there was a religious point to the tale, anchor yourself to the only true thing in life, which is God, not the transitory illusions of safety and pleasure. But also, like the story of the phoenix, it has another underlying bit to it, don't let your expectations get ahead of a realistic assessment of your situation. That's what I want to talk about today, expectations and pragmatic realism. After all, there appear to be a lot of islands, but indeed, a lot of them aren't 
there. Well, uh, some of you know I've been on my summer vacation. I took a short sabbatical this summer. The time was, uh, uh, I took off, I, I did a, a long lecture uh, in, back in June at the American Religious and Philosophical Thought Conference in Salt Lake City. It, it, the title of my talk was Lived Theologies of First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis. I told the scholars uh, gathered there, mostly philosophers and theologians and seminaries and religious education programs, part of the story of how this congregation has been an outlier among Unitarian Universalist congregations since we became explicitly humanist back in 1916. After all, the philosophy of humanism has changed a lot since 1916, and this congregation is not like a graduate seminar, I explained to them, in which you can just simply start up where you left off last class. Here, we deal with life and death and aging and disease and on and on, and uh, the challenges and the triumphs of human life. Living a full life can be a subject in a classroom, but actually living a full life and a fulfilling life in the real world is considerably more difficult than taking a class. And an ever-changing group of human beings have navigated through this congregation all of these years. But uh, we're still here, aren't we? The congregation continues. We are not an imaginary island. Now, I tell the story of First Unitarian Society whenever I get the chance to do that. Most people, even scholars of liberal religion, have no idea that this unique congregation exists as it has for well over a century. And speaking of graduate seminars, another sabbatical thing I was doing was preparing for a class that I'll be teaching at United Theological School this fall. Uh, we're teaching an introduction to humanism, and I'll be working with Reverend Kevin Jago, who many of you do remember. Yay! He was a, a, a member here and uh, worked uh, in uh, our social media for a while and then went off to uh, seminary and now is a minister in Pennsylvania, and we'll be doing that class over Zoom. Now, as you may know, United Theological Seminary is now offering a humanism concentration in their graduate program, which will prepare humanists for leadership in secular groups, congregations, and chaplaincy. I've also been researching and writing for a series of three lectures I'll be presenting in Boston this winter and then in the summer uh, in uh, the, uh, the uh, Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly, which will be in beautiful downtown Pittsburgh uh, coming up in June. It's called the Men's Lecture, not M-E-N, but M-I-N-N-S, and it's sponsored by a couple of the oldest uh, Unitarian congregations in the country, King's Chapel in Boston and First Church in Boston. Now, the overarching subject of that series will be comparing and contrasting and thinking about the way that humanism and Pentecostalism have grown up together. And yes, they have done that, even though we don't always think of it that way. Also, I will be inviting some other former Pentecostals like me, and one of those being Jay Hooper, who uh, will be speaking at General Assembly in Pittsburgh. 
Pentecostalism and humanism are both 20th century inventions, though of course they go back millennia with some of the ideas, but those two were extreme reactions to the Scopes monkey trial and evolution and that kind of thing. Humanism went into a hard materialist, naturalist reaction, and then, well, uh, Pentecostalism went into a more of a, an imaginary uh, way of thinking about that. So um, why did those two, what are the extremes, and why do so many of us who grew up Pentecostal then go into humanism? Well, they are extremes. They're polar opposites of each other in some very interesting ways. But, of course, you may know that there are uh, several thousand humanists in the United States today, and there are 68 million Pentecostals in the United States today. So, um, hmm, there seems to be a little bit of a, you know, a differential in how those two uh, did grow up over time, and I do want to look at that. So that's my summer vacation. But back to work now. The whale in the medieval books of beasts pulled a ship and its crew down to a watery grave, all because the sailors got the idea in their heads that they had been saved. We're saved, we're saved. Well, hmm, expectations were dashed. Kind of like Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football. Every time Charlie accepts Lucy's invitation to kick the football, uh-huh, and, well, we know what happens in the last millisecond there, don't we? So why doesn't Charlie Brown stop accepting Lucy's invitation to kick that darn football? Why does he allow his expectations to be dashed every time? But it is more complicated psychologically, isn't it? Because Charlie does wise up to some extent over time, but his skepticism is outweighed by his wish to trust Lucy, and also so she won't go, wah, you don't trust me. But his expectations are always dashed. We've all got them, and we know, we just know, oh, things like, you know, our wayward loved ones are finally going to straighten up and fly right, as the old saying goes. Uh, we just know that the United States is going to straighten up and fly right and realize, that, yes, that compassion and love and justice are the right way to go. And our expectations are always dashed, aren't they? The long COVID shutdown, the effects of which we all know just keep going, has dashed all sorts of expectations, weddings, memorial services, vacation plans, even to the extent of job security and, of course, the economy of the entire world kind of crashed, didn't it? Yet the effects continue to ripple out, and we still don't know what all of this disruption is going to do in terms of reshaping our traditional social structures, whether that be how and where we go to work or how we attend congregational gatherings. Just nobody knows what's coming up. But as a congregation, we do have to kind of decide what we're going to do. And yeah, Lucy and COVID are a lot alike. That football just keeps getting snatched away. 
and we say island or whale, which is it? Well, we're not the first generation to experience dashed expectations, as you probably have thought. The Buddha long ago began teaching that attachment to desired outcomes is the cause of much of human suffering. The Buddha trimmed the message down to a very succinct point. Attachment to specific outcomes is just like thinking a whale is an island. Stoic philosophers knew the danger of illusions and expectations. Marcus Aurelius put it this way, quote, the art of living is more like the art of a wrestler than the art of a dancer. Be ready, stand firm, and expect to be hit. Saul Alinsky, one of the most successful community organizers of all time, knew the dangers of false expectations. In his book, Rules for Radicals, Alinsky was nothing if not pragmatic. That's why I still love the book. And in the introduction, he has this to say. As an organizer, I start from where the world is, as it is, not as I would like it to be. That we accept the world as it is does not in any sense weaken our desire to change it into what we believe it should be. It is necessary to begin where the world is if we are going to change it to what we think it should be, end quote. Which, uh, in reply, I guess I have to say, darn, I wish he wasn't right. But he is. In another entry, Marcus Aurelius wrote, a cucumber is ruined, don't eat it. There are briars in the road, go around them. That's enough to do. No reason to ask why are there things like that in the world. People who know the nature of the world will laugh at you, he says, end quote. All about dashed expectations. So sure, we all hope to stand on solid ground. We all want to be firmly anchored rather than building fires on whales' backs. But overconfidence, we know, leads to disaster. As the emperor said, people who know the nature of the world will laugh at you. Isn't the pandemic supposed to be over after all, darn it? I expected that we would be done after those vaccines started coming out, right? And I don't even know how many shots I've got at the, had at this point, do you? I mean, is it three, four? I mean, I just don't know. I do get all of them early because I'm a diabetic, but you know how many? I just can't count anymore. It's uh, that darn island that I thought I saw wasn't there, was it? And so many other islands we saw were, in fact, sleeping whales. The Roe versus Wade decision, oh, yep, took a dive. The stability of U.S. Uh, democratic ideals and practices, eh, took a dive. Endless gun violence, the climate, inflation. An author speaks at a church camp and gets stabbed. I mean, you know, the, there are a lot of whales out there. The list goes on and on. They're whales, not islands. The contemporary Buddhist nun Pima Chodron puts it this way, quote, when we resist change, it's called suffering. But when we can completely let go and not struggle against it, when we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into its dynamic quality, that's called enlightenment, end quote. 
As Chodron points out, when our expectations are dashed, it's an opportunity for enlightenment. If we can let go, rather than just keep struggling. No, it's got to meet an island, right? If we can accept the limitations of our power and our knowledge. When we can embrace the groundlessness of our situation and relax into its dynamic quality, she says. The Buddhists are here to tell us it's all whales, right? It's all whales. My favorite aphorism concerning attachment to future outcomes comes from ancient Japan. Quote, demons laugh at talk of next year. Demons laugh at talk of next year. Uh, yeah, but uh, that said, uh, nothing gets done without planning, does it? And we have to talk about next year, even though the wise give the various demons in the that come up in the details they're due. What do you hope to see in the coming months here in this congregation? That's the question I would like to leave you pondering. And also do be watching your email. There will be a congregational survey coming out in the next few weeks just to kind of say, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And what are your wishes and expectations? We want to hear from you. And most of all, as you wander around the building or email and text and such, talk to the staff and the leaders of the congregation and let's uh, talk about what we want to be and what we want to do. We want you here. We want you to be part of the congregation, certainly. And we want you to be inspired to do as much or more than just to see what's going on here. So join us and we will eh, listen to the suppressed laughter of the demons talking of next year, but we will also stay uh, realistic and see what happens next. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.